0: dear friend of mine uh, who passed away Um, I really appreciate your prayers because it was probably the most challenging weekend uh, ministering that I've ever had Um, the funeral itself was fine it was leading up to and beyond the funeral afterwards Um, ministry was coming out everywhere for the whole weekend I was living with family and uh, so you know the the family of the deceased and so it was um Heavy duty ministry from basically from the time we got up in the morning to the time we went to bed at night every day and so um, very exhausting, very tiring, um, but very profitable so thank you very much for uh, for praying and um, I know Tom uh, would express thanks for the prayers for he and his family as well. Um, please continue to remember to pray for Tom and the extended family. There were some in the extended family who may not be saved and Heard the gospel at the funeral and uh, and um, so pray that the gospel have its effect there. And um, be praying also for Tom, of course, as he uh, continues to grieve and, and uh, go through the necessary grieving process that he must go through. So um, would he would certainly appreciate your prayers as well. We are starting in the book of Hebrews this morning. So before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we can open this an amazingly rich and powerful and valuable book, at the same time a very challenging book and complex book. I pray that you'll give us wisdom as we work our way through these 13 chapters. Um, there are obviously going to be some struggles uh, with passages that are very difficult to understand. There's going to be struggles with passages that are very easy to understand but very uncomfortable. And then there are going to be some amazingly uplifting passages. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in us. Help me to be able to communicate the truth. And, uh, Lord, I just pray you'll open our eyes to see and draw us to worshiping you. I pray for Tom and his family that you will accomplish what you've promised to accomplish, that your word will not have gone out in, in vain and that it will have effect. And at the same time, Lord, I pray you'll help those who are grieving to grieve and grieve well that are believers, recognizing that on the one hand, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but on the other hand, to know that, um, that Tom's mom is now separated from this sinful world and sin that we live in and has been set free to worship you completely and uh, that she now sees as she has seen and knows as she has known. And so, Lord, I pray that you will uh, minister to the family as you see fit and that you will glorify yourself. Glorify yourself this morning as we open your word and consider what you have to say. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to have a little bit of a different time together this morning. Some of you have been around long enough know that we do this well, usually when we go into a new book. You can turn to the book of Hebrews. But we're not going to exposit a text this morning. Usually when I go into a new book, uh, unless it's a relatively familiar book, we spend time doing a little bit of a background study the first week. So, we won't do it every week. We'll only do it t- today, but it's going to be a very different time uh, in, our, in our study this morning than usual. In other words, what I'm gonna do, going to do is I'm, I'm going to do a, a bit of a background just to give you a, a, an awareness of what we're, where we're going. We're going to look at a background to the text, the book of Hebrews, first. We're going to look at how, how the author of Hebrews put the book together, get an understanding of the, as I described, the coat hangers that the whole book hangs off of, you know, what are the major parts to the book, so we can, as we work our way through the book over the upcoming months, that we will be able to see how it all fits together. Very important that we do that, uh, so that we're not looking at passages in isolation of their context. We should never do that in the Scriptures. So we're going to spend time doing that. We're looking at a couple of the, uh, or address some of the problem passages um, briefly, because we'll pick up on them when we get to them. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to, Read through a large chunk of the text. Some of the smaller books will read the whole book. I understand that last week you read through the whole book of of Jonah. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Thirteen chapters. be a little long to read through it. But I do need to tell you, though, in the day, if you were out in Asia Minor in the day, and the biblical authors of the New Testament would pen a book, or pen a letter, actually, to a church like Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, whatever, when the pastor got the letter from the apostle, he would come the next Sunday and he'd get up and he would typically just, the message was about reading the text because the value is the text, not what this guy says. The value is the text itself. So although we are, and then what the pastor would do after that is he would most likely work his way through the text and explaining it and applying it and teaching the intricacies of the text to the congregation. We're going to do that very thing. We're going to model the ancient ways, if I may say that. We're going to read the text. We're going to have a significant reading of the text. We're not going to read sections from every chapter, but most chapters we're going to read little sections. You'll follow along as I read. And then we'll wrap it all up at the end. Does that make sense? We'll try to bring a little application at the end, a little, a little application for you at the end. But, but the most valuable thing we're going to do is read the Word of God this evening or this morning. So. Hebrews is an interesting book in a variety of ways. One of the ways it's it's interesting is we don't know who wrote it. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. There's a number of people that have been identified. I can tell you this. The major uh, views are Paul and Barnabas. There's a lot of minor views. Lately, a lot of people have been getting caught up in maybe Apollos writing it. You know what my answer is? I know God wrote it. See, there's always two authors. And I know God wrote it and I know there was a human author, I'm not going to wade into um, which one of those human authors it is because I don't think that, that we really have the information. And more importantly, I will tell you this, God, the Holy Spirit, when he, when he directed the writer of Hebrews to write the text, specifically directed the author not to identify himself. So I like the idea of leaving it unidentified. So we're going to leave that unidentified. Most likely, the text was written somewhere between 60 A.D. and 70 A.D., which is important. Most likely, it was written before the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. But it's really important to identify the time frame, because in identifying the time frame, we get an idea of perhaps one of the big reasons why the author wrote this to the church. And by the way, he did write it to a church, most likely. We don't know which church. Again, we don't know the author. We don't know the church, the recipients. But most likely, it was written to a specific church, although obviously passed around. Most likely, the reason why it was written was multifaceted. The initial reason why it was written most likely was because he was, the author was writing to a church full of people who were going through trials. All across the known world at this point in time, Christians were being persecuted. They were going through difficulties. They had gone through what was called the diaspora. That is, they were, because of persecution, driven out of Jerusalem and all over Asia Minor. The title of the book is The Letter to the Hebrews. Most likely, it was written to Jews, to Jewish believers. Although, I would submit to you, in the midst of the difficulties that these Jews who were dispersed were going through, it's not just written to Jews, although there's very strong Jewish overtones. There's a lot of references back to the Old Testament. A lot of references back to the Old Testament law. But it is much more importantly understood than just written to Jewish Christians. It's written to a church that is primarily Jewish. The reason why I say it that way is because there is some amazingly rich statements in this book about the church. Now, they're somewhat veiled, but there are some amazingly rich statements that the author communicates to the recipients about church, what church is all about, what the purpose for church is, and how church should view itself in the times it finds itself. How should a church think about the church in the midst of the times they find themselves? And the times they find themselves are not unique times. Because the world's always hated the church, always despised the church, always mocked and ridiculed the church because they've always despised Christ. So we're going to learn a whole lot about the church as we work our way through the text. But we're going to find, though, that primarily the text of the book of Hebrews is not primarily about Jews. It's not primarily about the law. It's not primarily about the church. It's not primarily about persecution or trials. Those are all secondary, or to use a better term, those are all the color of the story. The book of Hebrews is about something much more dramatic than that. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus. It's the reason why I chose to go to the book of Hebrews. We've been spending a lot of time. We were in Mark. We were in Colossians. We were in John, and lately we we're, were in 2 Timothy. What we're discovering is that the scriptures are all about Jesus. So Hebrews should not be surprised. It's about Jesus. But Hebrews is very interesting in that it is, a, in a very real way, a very important theological document. There's certain specific things that the author of Hebrews is writing about Jesus Christ that are more carefully constructed and more expansively constructed than pretty much anywhere else in the scriptures. And in light of that, he brings it to bear for the church and to the church and about the church. He brings that discussion to bear, or those discussions to bear for the recipient as they face trials and difficulties. He brings it to bear to Jewish believers who are trying to sort out how they should view the law, how they should view Christ. And in every one of those categories I just mentioned, that should not sound strange to us. Should it? Because we struggle with putting that together ourselves, don't we? How do we view the church in light of Christ? As a matter of fact, sometimes we even struggle with even seeing Christ in the church, don't we? Sometimes we just view the church as the church, and we forget about Christ. The author of Hebrews will not allow us to do that. Sometimes we go through struggles and trials, don't we? In fact, we regularly do. How do we view those trials? How do we think about those trials? How do we approach those trials? How do we work our way through those trials? In the light of Jesus Christ. Very important and poignant things for today. And although I know we never struggle with the law, many churches do, right? I'm just kidding. Exactly. We struggle with the law and its role and its function in real terms, in real life, in light of Christ. The author of Hebrews approaches this and many other subjects very tightly and very carefully. And so we'll spend our time working through those things. My hope in going through Hebrews is severalfold. You know, we've been asking the question, the the two questions. What are they again? For a number of years, question number one, who is this Christ? And number two, why is he so worthy of our worship? Two really important questions, two essential questions for every believer. And Hebrews is going to just, in a laser-focused type of way, dial in and looking at Jesus from those perspectives and the impact that it should have on believers' lives and their worship. So if I may quote from the ESV introduction real briefly, this is what the authors of the ESV or the translators of the ESV said. The letter to the Hebrews was written to encourage Christians in a time of trial. It does so by focusing on the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. While God spoke in the past many times and in many ways, he has now spoken to us by his son Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God's nature and who upholds the universe by the, power, by the word of his power. He, they take some of that out of chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Christians in time of trouble or trial. And the answer for the author of Hebrews for facing trial, for example, or trying to figure out, to broaden out more, trying to figure out church, to try to figure out our relationship with the law is this. Christ is absolutely supreme and Christ is absolutely sufficient. Why do I go back to that again? Because as we work our way through Hebrews, that's the two key phrases that ought to be resonating in your thinking every step of the way. The supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Because for the author of Hebrews, both the human and divine the author of Hebrews for them that's the absolute core of the truth because if he's not absolutely supreme and absolutely sufficient he's nothing he's absolutely nothing so how do how do we break down the book of Hebrews well before we get to that let me just say a few other things <coughs> Hebrews is interesting because there's not a whole lot of real commands. There's just not a whole lot of them. There's some. But the author of Hebrews approaches the book of Hebrews in a very different way than, than typically you find in the New Testament epistles. In the New Testament epistles, you find statements about Jesus, and you'll find a bunch of commands and prohibitions that come afterwards, the imperatives. In the book of Hebrews, there are some commands and prohibitions, but what you find more than commands and and prohibitions are statements of Jesus along with exhortations, calls to respond. More so than do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's more just very, very heavy and strong exhortations to interact with what was just said to carefully interact, to carefully think about it, to carefully consider it, to carefully and prayerfully wrestle with these truths. And so you find it somewhat different, but at the same time, you find the pattern the same that we've seen everywhere else. Let me remind you what the pattern is. And as, as a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews is probably one of the best illustrations of this incredibly important and often overlooked teaching. And that is this. You've heard me say it many times before. And that is that the indicatives always precede the imperatives. Now, we're going to expand that out to the indicatives always precede the imperatives and the exhortations. Okay? Which are a mild form of imperatives. What do we mean by that? Just a reminder. The indicatives are the statements of reality. They always precede the imperatives, or the commands and prohibitions, and we'll add in the exhortations. In other words, what God is doing is he will say, this is true. In our case, with regard to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, he's going to say, this is true of Jesus, consider it carefully. Oh, and this is true of Jesus, wrestle with this really carefully. And interact with this in light of this other indicative that I just said, this statement of reality. Oh, and this is also a reality of Jesus. And this is a reality of Jesus. And this is a reality of Jesus. Now think carefully about these. Wrestle with these. Interact with these. Intertwine these together. Dwell on these. Let them permeate throughout your your being. Let them percolate over and over again in your life. Let them run in your conscious mind. Dwell on them. And in light of that, he goes on to say, because of this, you need to consider this. You need to respond to that. And I exhort you to respond. And I give you really important ways to respond. Why do I explain it that way? Because imperatives and exhortations disconnected from the indicatives are meaningless. They're useless. Why are they useless? Because all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. When you dis- disconnect the exhortations and the imperatives from the indicatives, thing becomes from you, through you, and to you. To you be glory because you're doing so well. Because you kept the law. Because you did what you were told you needed to do. But when we see them in light of the indicatives, the declarations of truth, the declarations of reality, of what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit uses that to change our hearts, to change our perspectives, so that we repent, and then we respond to his truth. We respond to the exhortations. And now our lives are becoming more and more consistent with Christ. And they're bringing glory to Jesus Christ. So you're going to see in this book, there are going to be huge swaths of beautiful and deep and amazing and sometimes confusing. Indicatives. And then you're going to find some imperatives and mostly some exhortations that are going to be really clear. One's not clear at all. We're going to have to work on that one. But there's these really strong exhortation and, and imperative sections that usually are relatively easy to resp- to recognize, but they're very painful. They're very painful. And please understand, when, I, when when I study a text and I see that it's a painful text, you know what that means? If it was a painful text, it must be painful, right? If it was a painful text, it's got to be painful. For me to take a text that by very nature is painful and try to make it not painful or not as painful is to do a disservice to what God is really trying to say because in reality, if the imperatives follow the indicatives, for me to take an imperative or an exhortation passage that by its very nature, it's painful. And by the way, it's painful because my heart is deceitfully wicked, right? And because I find myself regularly forgetting Jesus, the indicative. For me to make it less painful, by very nature, is for me to make the indicative statements about Jesus less true and less important and less valuable. So it's very important that we recognize the painful passages, but it's very important we recognize the beautiful, indicative passages as well. And that's what we're going to do as we work our way through the text. So th- before we get into the breakdown of the text itself, let me just say this. There is. I mentioned before there's some amazing contributions in this text to the overall corpus of what the Scriptures are trying to communicate. So let me give those to you real quickly. The contributions doctrinally or theologically that, that the author of Hebrews gives us a, is this. He breaks apart the teaching in, in, in the Gospels about his incarnation, that is, Jesus becoming man. And what he does is he goes behind the scenes, as it were, and he begins to show the beauty and depth and amazement of the incarnation. Incarnation referring to God becoming man. So he's going to unpack the beauty of the doctrines of the incarnation for the reader. And hopefully we'll be able to do so as well. The author of Hebrews spends a significant period of time talking about Christ's substitutionary death. That his death was substitutionary. It was in your place. In your place he stood. He's going to spend a significant time explaining and unpacking the beauty of that theology. And basically summed up in, in the idea that, that he stood in your place and he put you in his place. And I think you'll be amazed at what he has to say about that. He's going to spend a significant period of time talking about Jesus Christ as king. It's talked about in the Gospels. He's described that way in the Gospels, but he's going to develop that. And so we're going to learn more as we Probe the understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ is king what his role was and is. And he's also going to talk about Jesus Christ as a high priest. That's going to get into one of the difficult passages as he talks about Melchizedek in chapter 7. We've got to work our way through that one. That's going to be a little bit of a challenge. You have to come with your thinking caps on for that one. I'm going to have to as well. We're going to talk about his priesthood. What does it mean that he's the high priest? And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? And most importantly, what does that mean for the church? That he's our high priest. And the goal in all these things, and many other smaller things, is that we're drawn to worship how great our God is, and how great his love is for us. A couple other things that he's going to address in the book of Hebrews are these. He's going to talk about the relationship of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. How does the Old Covenant and New Covenant connect with each other, or disconnect, as the case may be? How does the Old Testament covenant and New Covenant that we have interact with one another and intersect? And building on that, he's going to talk about how do we interpret the Old Testament. And then what is actually is the life of faith? What is it? What does it look like? What can we gain in understanding and looking at the book of Hebrews with regard to the life of faith? So how does the book of Hebrews break down? I'm going to break it down in big categories first, and then two big categories, and then four smaller categories for you if you're taking notes so you can think through the book itself. In chapters 1 through 10, what the writer of Hebrews addresses, and by the way, if I may just say this, you'll catch me sometimes say Paul as I talk about, you know, Paul said in Hebrews, you'll catch me accidentally saying that. It's not that I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. It's just that Paul wrote so much in the New Testament it just becomes second nature to say Paul. I've done that in the Old Testament before as well. So if I do say Paul, just understand, he just accidentally said Paul. Just want to put that out there in the beginning. I do that once in a while. In chapters 1 through 10, what we find is that Again, general, in a broad-brushed way, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate is that Jesus accomplished complete salvation for all who trust in Him. He accomplished complete salvation. He didn't take it three-quarters of the way. He didn't take it nine-tenths of the way. See, there's, there's a view among Christianity. It's not oftentimes fully spoken this way or... Or theologically constructed this way, but the view in a lot of Christianity is that God did his part and now I need to do my part. And depending on what camp we come from, it's more, the, the my part is more extreme or less extreme, or more expansive or less expansive, but I find almost universally, I find most times Christians are thinking about it from the perspective of, I somehow, though we'd never word it this way, but I somehow bring something to the table. Unlike the song that we sang this morning that said, what do we bring to the table? Filthy rags is all I bring. I bring nothing. I have nothing to offer but my sin. That's all I have to offer. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews is going to argue. You have nothing to offer. Christ did it all. When he said it is finished on the cross, He was not lying. It is finished. We bring nothing. And so it's really important that we hear what he has to say about salvation. By the way, the author of Hebrews will present to you that not only did he do it all on the cross from a perspective of justification, but the author of Hebrews is going to argue strongly that he did it all with regard to sanctification as well. It doesn't mean that we're passive in our sanctification. Sanctification means growing and changing, becoming more like Christ. It doesn't mean that that we're passive in it and it kind of just happens. No, we're very active. But we're active because he's active in us. Our sanctification is really what he gives to us, the author of Hebrews is going to argue. I don't sanctify myself. I live out the sanctification that he brings to me. Radically different. So the salvation, verses one th- or chapters 1 through 10, that Jesus Christ accomplished is complete in every way. And ultimately, also, we could add in there our, the glorification. When we go home to be with him, it's all because of what he does. It's in light of that teaching, chapters 1 through 10, that the author of Hebrews will say repeatedly, nowhere summed up any better than chapter 2, but it shows up in chapter 5, it shows up in chapter 6, and it shows up in chapter 10. If you want those, those passages, I'll give them to you. Chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 5, verses 12 through chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 10, verses 19 through 39 but it is summed up nowhere any better than chapter 2 verse 3 if it is true that Jesus salvation that he's accomplished for us is absolutely complete then he sums it up in verse 3 by saying how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation and the reason why he says that we're going to find when we get to Ephesians I'm sorry to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 is because we have a tendency to what to neglect so great a salvation. And so the exhortation he's going to have after talking about this, and he's going to do it repeatedly, is that there's danger in neglecting it. And there is commonality among believers in neglecting it. Neglecting what? So great a salvation. Up to this point in time, if we're not careful. Salvation is cool for most Christians. Glad I got it for a lot of Christians. Salvation is a good thing because I don't go to hell for so many Christians. Salvation is really great because I get to go to heaven for so many Christians. And all that's true, right? And many more. But in every one of those, the focus is on what? And who? It's on me. But the salvation that Hebrews is going to talk about from beginning to end, from chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 19, is all going to be salvation is focused on the one who brought it. Salvation is going to be focused on the one who accomplished it. Salvation is focused upon the one who offers it salvation is focused on the one who gives it see we see how great the salvation is when we see how great the giver of salvation is that's when salvation becomes amazing and that's what hebrews is really going to drive him and drive toward and then verses eleven, or I'm sorry, chapters eleven through thirteen, in the second part of the two-part big umbrella division. In in light of chapters one through ten, the author of Hebrews is going to say, in light of what I just said for ten chapters, the reader of Hebrews should, as a result, in her everyday living, imitate example of Christ and he also gives us in chapter 11 many many people that we should look to as examples of what it looks like to not neglect so great a salvation that's what Hebrews is really trying to accomplish Hebrews 11 I mean is trying to accomplish if we were to break down Hebrews into smaller categories, four categories, we could break it, out, break it down this way. Chapters 1 through 4. The writer of Hebrews is introducing us to Christ in two ways. He's introducing us to Christ as the living word. Sound familiar? John chapter 1. He's going to approach it from a different perspective, but Christ is the living word of God. and He's going to introduce us to Jesus Christ. And more than introduce us to, he's going to probe some depths of Christ as the King. So we're going to learn a lot about Christ as King. You're going to find every one of these categories as he examines Christ as the Living Word of God, and as he examines Christ as King. In the middle of it, he's going to do something. What he's going to do is he's going to say, "If this is true, then we'll move into exhortation." He's going to say, "If this is true, then to see it." We just read that passage in chapter 2, verse 10. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Exhortation. And you're going to see those type of things everywhere. A short section of explanation, indicative, statement of reality, and then a declaration of exhortation in some cases, an imperative. So chapters 1 through 4, Christ is the living word of God and King. Chapters 5 through 8. The author of Hebrews is going to introduce us to and probe some depths of Christ as not just the high priest, but your high priest. Your high priest personally and our high priest corporately. And what does that mean? Because we don't deal with high priests today, do we? We're not Jews, we don't practice Judaism. So we we don't understand necessarily what a high priest is all about. And so he's going to probe in the Old Testament. He's going to bring a bunch of Old Testament passages to bear. And he's going to try to explain what, how he is a better high priest. As a matter of fact, not just a better high priest, but the perfect high priest for those who are his. Absolutely trustworthy in every way. He's the eternal high priest. He's your only hope as the high priest. So we're going to learn about that. Again, as he goes through that in chapters 5 through 8, he's going to take some really significant pauses to exhort the reader. So you have these amazingly beautiful, awe inspiring texts, followed up by exhortations about how to respond to those beautiful texts. Then the third category is chapters 9 through 10. Chapters 9 through 10, the author. Of Hebrews will introduce us and again probe some of the depths of Christ as the perfect sacrifice. There should be a lot of comparison, contrasts between the Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. The perfect sacrifice. And what does it mean? And why is it important? And why is it valuable? And why should it always be in our thinking? And that's what he's going to focus in on. And again. We're going to find this dramatic, these dramatic statements interspaced with these exhortations of how we should respond to it. And in chapter thir- 11 through 13, we're going to have in the final section an introduction and probing of the depths of Christ as our sanctification. He's not just the living word of God and king. He's not just the high priest. He's not just the perfect sacrifice and the ramifications of that being our justification. But he's also our perfect sanctification. Because even as believers, all our righteousness is filthy rags. And we stand before God on the judgment day. There's no question in my mind that he's not going to examine my good deeds. And as a result, say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom I prepared for you. Because if he examines my deeds, if he examines my faithfulness, if he examines all of my feeble attempts, what is he going to see? As Tom Houghton says quite often, if you don't mind me quoting you again, Tom, he's going to see that in every one of those activities there was sin present. In every one of those activities, in every one of those thoughts, in every one of those words I spoke, sin was present. Inevitably, it was so. Filthy rags. Paltry. But when we stand in judgment, he's going to look at us and he's going to see the righteousness of Jesus. And when he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to you, given to you, because he put you in his place. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because he's going to not not be speaking about you primarily. He's going to be speaking about the (laughs) son. Enter into the kingdom I prepared for you. Wow. Is it any wonder that John said, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. (laughs) At the same time, the author of Hebrews, is going to introduce us to Christ as our sanctification, he is also going to give us exhortations about how to respond, how it's appropriate to respond to these truths, these indicatives. Now, I've already hinted at it, but interspaced throughout the text, you're going to find a number of other texts. So we have these lofty, amazing views. If I'm going to use the illustration, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you walk up to the Grand Canyon, if you're like most humans, you're going to look out over the vista and your breath is going to be taken away, and you're going to be in awe of what you see. Or if you go to the Rocky Mountains, your breath is going to be taken. But you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, a mile deep. And your breath is taken away. And then as your breath is taken away with the vista, you will hear someone say to you something along the lines of, be careful, won't you? It's okay, Linda. Be careful. Why? Because you can't just approach it flippantly, can you? You can't approach the edge of the Grand Canyon flippantly, casually. You can't approach it with if you approach it casually, you're going to probably be in trouble. People die there every year. You can't approach it casually. You gotta be careful. You've got to watch where you set your feet. You gotta watch so you don't trip. You gotta watch so you don't lose your balance and get injured or die. Exhortation. Correct? Isn't that what it is? The imperatives. But they're following the indicatives, the beauty. That's what you see in Hebrews. You're going to see this vista of Christ that is breathtaking. This vista that's just awe-inspiring. But as you hear it, interspersed throughout, you have these warnings. And the warnings will scream out, not be careful you don't fall in, But the warnings are to be careful that you don't get a hard heart, that you don't get a cold heart, which is really striking. How is it possible to have a VISTA like that and get a cold heart? How is it possible? It is very possible. As a matter of fact, it's more than possible. It's common. As a matter of fact, more than common, it's universal. Isn't it? For believers to struggle with that. Universal, to struggle. If you don't think that's a struggle for you, that's how hard your heart is. Because it is. And so you find warnings most of them kind of small, short, pithy warnings, exhortations. Some of them are huge. Let me give you some of the more poignant ones. Or just you can't miss them. They kind of reach you out and grab you by the collar. There's three very important ones. Chapters three and four you'll find one. I'm not going to go into them today. We'll get there when we get there. But I want to give them to you so you can look at them and notice them. Chapters 3 and 4 are almost completely that. Chapter 6 is just about completely that. And that, by the way, is one of those complex passages that we're going to have to work through because some have argued that the text teaches that you can lose your salvation. It doesn't, I don't believe, but we're going to work our way through that. And then the the last extensive warning is chapter 6, although it's not a large section of verses, it's very intense. I'm not saying chapter 6, chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. Now, again, there's many others, chapter 2, almost every other chapter has them. But those are the really reach off the pages and grab you by the collar type of passages. Now, what I'd like to do now, if I may, as we wrap up our... We're not wrapping up yet. We've got quite a ways to go. But as we wrap up the intro, I'd like to just take a significant period of time and read some scriptures, if that would be all right with you. So you can follow along and just jump from page to page, and I will read them. You can just follow along. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Again, it's not every chapter that we're we're going to read. I just picked out some very important passages. And what I want you to do as we read through it is listen. And think about it. Don't let your mind fight to not let your mind go in neutral. Listen to them. Because the word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I just want to read. And I just want you to listen, hear the word of the Lord. Starting in chapter 1, the first passage I'd like to read is chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Again, there's context to every one of these passages. We'll work through them when we get to them. I just wanted to read. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 3, verses 1-6. through Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waiting, obtained the promise to the hope before us, set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. and I will remember their sins no more. Amen? Wow. Vista. Vista. It's breathtaking. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, That is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead, from dead works to serve the living God, the power of Christ. Amen? Wow. The vista. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. Sacrifices and offerings you, God, have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O Lord, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Then The offering of Jesus Christ once for all did what those sacrifices could never, ever do. Chapter 12. I'm skipping over chapter 11. We know chapter 11 pretty well, most of us. Chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, And a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you and I have come to Mount Zion. Jesus Christ in chapter 13 verses 10 through 15. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest is a sacrifice for sin as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp his name and then lastly chapter 13 verses 20 through 21 i want to end on 13 20 through 21 which is the benediction of the book the closing benediction so if i may offer you a benediction in closing now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus christ the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you and me with every good, with everything good, that you may do His will, according or working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to Him or to whom be glory forever and ever, Amen. You'll notice that I skipped over all the exhortation passages. I did it on purpose because we need to hear the indicatives. I didn't read all the indicatives, but we need to hear the indicatives. So I want to read again the benediction to you as our benediction before we go to song. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And next week we will pick up in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 1.